0: Chapter Thirty One of the Quest of the Silver Fleece. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W. E. B. Dubose. Chapter Thirty One A Parting of Ways. Was the child born dead? Worse than dead. Somehow, somewhere, Mary Cresswell had heard these words long, long ago, down there, in the great pain-swept shadows of utter agony, where earth seemed slipping its moorings, and now, today, she lay repeating them mechanically, grasping vaguely at their meaning. Long she had wrestled with them as they twisted and turned and knotted themselves, and she worked and toiled. So hard has she lay there to make the thing clear, to understand. Was the child born dead? Worse than dead. Then faint and fainter whisperings. What could be worse than death? She had tried to ask the gray old doctor, but he soothed her like a child each day and left her lying there. Today she was stronger, and for the first time sitting up, looking listlessly out across the world. A queer world. Why had they not let her see the child? Just one look at its little dead face. That would have been something. And again, as the doctor cheerily turned to go, she sought to repeat the old question. He looked at her sharply, then interrupted, saying kindly, There now, you've been dreaming. You must rest quietly now. And with a nod, he passed into the other room to talk with her husband. She was not satisfied. She had not been dreaming. She would tell Harry to ask him. She did not often see her husband, but she must ask him now, and she arose unsteadily and swayed noiselessly across the floor. A moment she leaned against the door, then opened it slightly. From the other side, the words came distinctly and clearly. "'Other children, doctor?' "'You must have no other children, Mr. Cresswell.' "'Why?' "'Because the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children "'until the third and fourth generation.' "'Slowly, softly, she crept away. "'Her mind seemed very clear, "'and she began a long journey to reach her window and chair. "'A long, long journey. "'But at last she sank into the chair again, "'and sat dry-eyed, wondering who had conceived this world and made it, and why. "'A long time afterward she found herself lying in bed, awake, conscious, clear-minded. "'Yet she thought as little as possible, for that was pain. "'But she listened gladly, for without she heard the solemn beating of the sea, "'the mighty rhythmic beating of the sea.' Long days she lay and sat and walked beside those vast and speaking waters, till at last she knew their voice, and they spoke to her, and the sea calm soothed her soul. For one brief moment of her life, she saw herself clearly, a well-meaning woman, ambitious, but curiously narrow, not willing to work long for the vision, but leaping at it rashly, blindly with a deep-seated sense of duty, which she made a source of offense by preening and parading it, and forcing it to ill-timed notice. She saw that she had looked on her husband as a means and not an end. She had wished to absorb him and his work for her own glory. She had idealized for her own uses a very human man, whose life had been full of sin and fault, she must atone. No sooner, in this brief moment, did she see herself honestly than her old habits swept her on tumultuously. No ordinary atonement would do. The sacrifice must be vast. The world must stand in wonder before this clever woman, sinking her soul in another and raising him, by sheer will, to the highest. So, after six endless months Mary Cresswell walked into her Washington home again. She knew she had changed in appearance, but she had forgotten to note how much until she saw the stare, almost the recoil, of her husband, the muttered exclamation, the studied, almost overdone welcome. Then she went up to her mirror and looked long and knew. She was strong, she felt well, but she was slight, almost scrawny and her beauty was gone forever. It had been of that blonde, white-and-pink type that fades in a flash, and its going left her body flattened and angular, her skin drawn and dead white, her eyes sunken. From the radiant girl whom Cresswell had met three years earlier, the change was startling, and yet the contrast seemed even greater than it was, for her glory then had been her abundant and almost golden hair. Now that hair was faded and falling so fast that, at last, the doctor advised her to cut it short. This left her ill-shaped head exposed and emphasized the sunken hollows of her face. She knew that she was changed, but she did not quite realize how changed until now as she stood and gazed. Yet she did not hesitate but from that moment set herself to her new life task. Characteristically, she started dramatically and largely. She was to make her life an endless sacrifice. She was to revivify the manhood in Harry Cresswell, and all this for no return, no partnership of soul. All was to be complete sacrifice and sinking soul in soul. If Mary Cresswell had attempted less, she would have accomplished more. As it was, she began well. She went to work tactfully, seeming to note no change in his manner toward her. But his manner had changed. He was studiously, scrupulously polite in private, and in public devoted. But there was no feeling, no passion, no love. The polished shell of his clan reflected conventional light even more carefully than formally because the shell was cold and empty. There were no little flashes of anger now, no poutings, no sweet reconciliations. Life ran very smoothly and courteously, and while she did not try to regain the affection, she strove to enthrall his intellect. She supplied a subcommittee upon which he was serving, not directly, but through him, with figures, with reports, books, and papers so that he received special commendations, a praise that picked as well as pleased him, because it implied a certain surprise that he was able to do it. The damned Yankees, he sneered, they think they've got the brains of the nation. Why not make a speech on the subject, she suggested. He laughed. The matter under discussion was the cotton goods schedule of the new tariff bill, about which... Really, he knew a little. His wife placed every temptation to knowledge before him, even inspiring Senator Smith to ask him to defend that schedule against the low-tariff advocate. Mary Cresswell worked with redoubled energy, and for nearly a week, Harry stayed at home nights and studied. Thanks to his wife, the speech was unusually informing and well put, and the fact that a prominent free trader spoke the same afternoon, gave it publicity, while Mr. Easterly saw to the press dispatches. Cresswell subscribed to a clipping bureau, and tasted the sweets of dawning notoriety, and Mrs. Cresswell arranged a select dinner party which included a cabinet officer, a foreign ambassador, two millionaires, and the leading southern congressman. The talk came around to the failure of the Senate to confirm Mr. Vanderpool, and it was generally assumed that the President would not force the issue. Who then should be nominated? There were several suggestions, but the knot of Southern congressmen about Mrs. Cresswell declared emphatically that it must be a Southerner. Not since the war had a prominent Southerner represented America at a first-class foreign court. It was shameful. The time was ripe for change. But who? Here the opinions differed widely. Nearly everyone mentioned a candidate, and those who did not seemed to refrain from motives of personal modesty. Mary Cresswell sped her departing guests with a distinct purpose in mind. She must make herself leader of the Southern set in Washington, and concentrate its whole force on the appointment of Harry Cresswell as ambassador to France. Quick reward and promotion were essential to Harry's success. He was not one to keep up the strain of effort a long time. Unless, then, tangible results came and came quickly, he was liable to relapse into old habits. Therefore, he must succeed, and succeed at once. She would have preferred a less ornamental position than the ambassadorship But there were no other openings. The Alabama Senators were firmly seated for at least four years, and the governorship had been carefully arranged for. A term of four years abroad, however, might bring Harry Cresswell back in time for greater advancement. At any rate, it was the only tangible offering, and Mary Cresswell silently determined to work for it. Here it was that she made her mistake. It was one thing for her to be a tactful hostess, pleasing her husband and his guests. It was another for her to aim openly at social leadership and political influence. She had, at first, all the insignia of success. Her dinners became of real political significance, and her husband figured more and more as a leading southerner. The result was twofold. Cresswell, on the one hand, with his usual selfishness, took his rising popularity as a matter of course and as the fruits of his own work. He was rising, he was making valuable speeches, he was becoming a social power, and his only handicap was his plain and over-ambitious wife. But on the other hand, Mrs. Cresswell forgot two pitfalls, the cleft between the old Southern aristocracy and the pushing new Southerners, and above all, her northern birth, and presumably pro-Negro sympathies. What Mrs. Cresswell forgot, Mrs. Vanderpool sensed unerringly. She had heard with uneasiness of Cresswell's renewed candidacy for the Paris ambassadorship, and she set herself to block it. She had worked hard. The President stood ready to send her husband's appointment again to the Senate, whenever Easterly could assure him of favorable action. Easterly had long and satisfactory interviews with several Senators, while the Todd insurgents were losing heart at the prospect of choosing between Vanderpool and Cresswell. At present, four Southern votes were needed to confirm Vanderpool, but if they could not be had, Easterly declared it would be good politics to nominate Cresswell and give him Republican support. Manifestly, then, Mrs. Vanderpool's task was to discredit the Cresswells with the Southerners. It was not a work to her liking, but the die was cast, and she refused to contemplate defeat. The result was that while Mrs. Cresswell was giving large and brilliant parties to the whole Southern contingent, Mrs. Vanderpool was engineering exclusive dinners where old New York met stately Charleston, and gossiped interestingly. On such occasions it was hinted, not once, but many times, that the Cresswells were well enough, but who was that upstart wife who presumed to take social precedence? It was not, however, until Mrs. Cresswell's plan for an all-Southern art exhibit in Washington that Mrs. Vanderpool, in a flash of inspiration, saw her chance. In the annual exhibit at the Cochrane Art Gallery, A southern girl had nearly won first prize over a western man the consensus of the southern opinion was that the judgment had been unfair and mrs cresswell was convinced of this with quick intuition she suggested a southern exhibit with such social prestige back of it as to impress the country the proposal caught the imagination of the southern set none suspected a possible intrusion OF THE ETERNAL RACE ISSUE, FOR NO NEGROES WERE ALLOWED IN THE Cochrane EXHIBIT OR SCHOOL. THIS Mrs. Vanderpool easily ascertained, and a certain sense of justice combined in a curious way with her political intrigue to bring about the undoing of Mary Cresswell. Mrs. Vanderpool's very first cautious inquiries, by way of the back stairs, brought gratifying response. "'for did not all black Washington "'know well of the work and sculptor "'done by Mrs. Samuel Stillings, "'knee, Wynn? "'Mrs. Vanderpool remembered Mrs. Stillings perfectly, "'and she walked that evening "'through unobtrusive thoroughfares "'and called upon Mrs. Stillings. "'Had Mrs. Stillings heard of the new art movement? "'Did she intend to exhibit? "'Mrs. Stillings did not intend to exhibit.' As she was sure, she would not be welcomed. She had had a bust accepted at the Cochrane Art Gallery once, and when they found she was colored, they returned it. But if she were especially invited, that would make a difference, although, even then, the line would be drawn somehow. Would it not be worth the fight, suggested Mrs. Vanderpool, with a little heightening of color in her pale cheek. "'Perhaps,' said Mrs. Stillings, as she brought out some specimens of her work. Mrs. Vanderpool was both ashamed and grateful. With money and leisure, Mrs. Stillings had been able to get in New York and Boston the training she had been denied in Washington on account of her color. The things she exhibited really had merit, and one curiously original group appealed to Mrs. Vanderpool tremendously.' "'Send it,' she counseled, with strangely contradictory feelings of enthusiasm, and added, "'Enter it under the name of Wynn.'" In addition to the general invitations to the art exhibit, numbers of special ones were issued to promising southern amateurs, who had never exhibited. For these, a prize of a long-term scholarship and other smaller prizes were offered. When Mrs. Vanderpool suggested the name of Miss Wynne to Mrs. Cresswell, among a dozen others, for special invitation, there was nothing in its sound to distinguish it from the rest of the names, and the invitation went duly. As a result, there came to the exhibit a little group called the Outcasts, which was really a masterly thing, and sent the director, Signor Alberni, into hysterical commendation. In the private view and award of prizes which preceded the larger social function, the jury hesitated long between the outcasts and a painting from Georgia. Mrs. Cresswell was enthusiastic and voluble for the bit of sculptor, and it finally won the vote for the first prize. All was ready for the great day. The President was coming and most of the diplomatic corps, high officers of the army, and all the social leaders. Congress would be well represented, and the boom for Cresswell as ambassador to France was almost visible in the air. Mary Cresswell paused a moment in triumph, looking back at the darkened hall, when a little woman fluttered up to her and whispered, "'Mrs. Cresswell, have you heard the gossip?' "'No. What?' That wind-woman, they say, is a nigger. Some are whispering that you brought her in purposely to force social equality. They say you used to teach darkies. Of course, I don't believe all their talk, but I thought you ought to know. She talked a while longer, then fluttered furtively away. Mrs. Cresswell sat down limply. She saw ruin ahead, to think of a black girl taking a prize at an all-Southern art exhibit. But there was still a chance, and she leaped to action. This colored woman was, doubtless, some poor, deserving creature. She would call on her immediately, and, by an offer of abundant help, induce her to withdraw quietly. Entering her motor, she drove near the address, and then proceeded on foot. The street was a prominent one, the block one of the best, the house almost pretentious, She glanced at her memorandum again, to see if she was mistaken. Perhaps the woman was a domestic. Probably she was, for the name on the door was Stillings. It occurred to her that she had heard that name before, but where? She looked again at her memorandum, and at the house. She rang the bell, asking the trim black maid, Is there a person named Caroline Wynn living in this house? The girl smiled and hesitated. "'Yes, ma'am,' she finally replied. "'Won't you come in?' She was shown into the parlor where she sat down. The room was most interesting, furnished in unimpeachable taste. A few good pictures were on the walls, and Mrs. Cresswell was examining one when she heard the swish of silken skirts. A lady with golden-brown face and straight hair stood before her with pleasant smile. Where had Mrs. Cresswell seen her before? She tried to remember, but could not. You wished to see Carolyn Wynne? Yes. What can I do for you? Mrs. Cresswell groped for her proper cue, but the brown lady merely offered a chair and sat down silently. Mrs. Cresswell's perplexity increased. She had been planning to descend graciously but authoritatively, upon some shrinking girl. But this woman not only seemed to assume equality, but actually looked it. From a rapid survey, Mrs. Cresswell saw a black silk stocking, a bit of lace, a tailor-made gown, and a head with two full black eyes that waited in calmly polite expectancy. Something had to be said. I, er, came, that is. I believe you sent a group to the art exhibit. Yes. It was good, very good. Miss Wynne said nothing, but sat calmly looking at her visitor. Mrs. Cresswell felt irritated. Of course, she managed to continue. We are very sorry that we cannot receive it. Indeed, I understood it had taken the first prize. Mrs. Cresswell was aghast who had rushed the news to this woman. She realized that there were depths to this matter that she did not understand, and her irritation increased. You know that we cannot give the prize to a Negro? Why not? That is quite immaterial. Social equality cannot be forced. At the same time, I recognize the injustice, and I have come to say that if you will withdraw your exhibit, you will be given a scholarship, in a Boston school. I do not wish it." Well, what do you want? I was not aware that I had asked for anything. Mrs. Cresswell felt herself getting angry. Why did you send your exhibit when you knew it was not wanted? Because you asked me to. We did not ask for colored people. You asked all Southern-born persons. I am a person and I am Southern-born. Moreover, you sent me a personal letter. Mrs. Cresswell was sure that this was a lie, and was thoroughly incensed. "'You cannot have the prize,' she almost snapped. "'If you withdraw, I will pay you any reasonable sum. "'Thank you. "'I do not want money. "'I want justice.' Mrs. Cresswell arose, and her face was white. "'That is the trouble with you Negroes. "'You wish to get above your places "'and force yourselves where you are not wanted. "'It does no good. "'It only makes trouble and enemies.' "'Mrs. Cresswell stopped, "'for the colored woman had gone quietly out of the room, "'and in a moment the maid entered and stood ready. "'Mrs. Cresswell walked slowly to the door "'and stepped out. "'Then she turned. "'What does Miss Wynne do for a living?' The girl tittered. She used to teach school, but she don't do nothing now. She just married. Her husband is Mr. Stillings, Register of the Treasury. Mrs. Cresswell saw light as she turned to go down the steps. There was but one resource. She must keep the matter out of the newspapers, and see Stillings, whom she now remembered well. I beg your pardon. Does the Miss Wynne live here who got the prize in the art exhibition?" Mrs. Cresswell turned in amazement. It was evidently a reporter, and the maid was admitting him. The news would reach the papers and be blazoned tomorrow. Slowly she caught her motor, and fell wearily back on its cushions. "'Where to, madam? asked the chauffeur. "'I don't care,' returned madam. So the chauffeur took her home. She walked slowly up the stairs. All her carefully laid plans seemed about to be thwarted, and her castles were leaning toward ruin. Yet all was not lost. If her husband continued to believe in her, if, as she feared, he should suspect her on account of this Negro woman and quarrel with her. But he must not. This very night, before the morning papers came out, she must explain. He must see, he must appreciate her efforts. She rushed into her dressing room and called her maid. Contrary to her Puritan notions, she frankly sought to beautify herself. She remembered that it was the anniversary of her coming to this house. She got out her wedding dress, and although it hung loosely, the maid draped the silver fleece beautifully about her. She heard her husband enter and come upstairs. Quickly finishing her toilet, she hurried down to arrange the flowers, for they were alone that night. The telephone rang. She knew it would ring upstairs in his room, but she usually answered it, for he disliked to. She raised the receiver and started to speak when she realized that she had broken into the midst of a conversation. "'Committee won't meet tonight, Harry.' "'So, all right. Anything on?' "'Yes.' Big Spree at Nell's. Will you go?' "'Sure thing. You know me. What time?' "'Meet us at the Willard by nine. So long.' Goodbye. She slowly, half-guiltily replaced the receiver. She had not meant to listen, but now to her desperate longing to keep him home was added a new motive. Where was Nell's? What was Nell's? What was? And there was fear in her heart. At dinner, She tried all her powers on him. She had his favorite dishes. She mixed his salad and selected his wine. She talked interestingly and listened sympathetically to him. He looked at her with more attention. Her cheeks were more brilliant, for she had touched them with rouge. Her eyes flashed, but he glanced furtively at her short hair. She saw the act, but still she strove until he was content and laughing. Then, coming round back of his chair, she placed her arms about his neck. "'Harry, will you do me a favor?' "'Why, yes, if—' "'It is something I want very, very much.' "'Well, all right, if—' "'Harry, I feel a little hysterical tonight, and—' "'You will not refuse me, will you, Harry?' Standing there, she saw the tableau in her own mind, and it looked strange. She was afraid of herself. She knew that she would do something foolish if she did not win this battle. She felt that overpowering fanaticism back within her, raging restlessly. If she was not careful... But what is it you want? asked her husband. I don't want you to go out tonight. He laughed awkwardly. Nonsense, girl. The subcommittee on the cotton schedule meets tonight. Very important. Otherwise... She shuddered at the smooth lie and clasped him closer, putting her cheek to his. "'Harry,' she pleaded, "'just this once, for me?' He disengaged himself, half-impatiently, and rose, glancing at the clock. It was nearly nine. A feeling of desperation came over her. "'Harry,' she asked again, as he slipped on his coat. "'Don't be foolish,' he growled. "'Just this once, Harry. I?' But the door banged to, and he was gone. She stood looking at the closed door a moment. Something in her head was ready to snap. She went to the rack, and taking his long, heavy overcoat, slipped it on. It nearly touched the floor. She seized a soft, broad-brimmed hat and umbrella, and walked out. Just what she meant to do, she did not know. But somehow... She must save her husband and herself from evil. She hurried to the Willard Hotel and watched, walking up and down the opposite sidewalk. A woman brushed by her and looked her in the face. "'Hell, I thought you was a man,' she said. "'Is this a new gag?' Mrs. Cresswell looked down at herself involuntarily and smiled wanly. She did look like a man, with her hat and coat and short hair. The woman... Peered at her doubtingly. She was, as Mrs. Cresswell noticed, a young woman, once pretty perhaps, and a little overdressed. Are you walking? she asked. What do you mean? asked Mrs. Cresswell, and then in a moment it flashed upon her. She took the woman's arm and walked with her. Suddenly she stopped. Where's Nell's? The woman frowned. Oh, that's a swell place, she said. Senators and millionaires. Too high for us to fly. Mrs. Cresswell winced. But where is it? she asked. We'll walk by it if you want to. And Mary Cresswell walked in another world. Up from the ground of the drowsy city rose pale gray forms, pale, flushed and brilliant, in silken rags. Up and down they passed, to and fro, looking and gliding, like sheeted ghosts, now dodging policemen, now accosting them familiarly. Hello, Elsie, growled one big blue coat. Hello, Jack. What's this? As he peered at Mrs. Cresswell, who shrank back. Friend of mine, all right. A horror crept over Mary Cresswell. Where had she lived that she had seen so little before? What was Washington? And what was this fine, tall, quiet residence? Was this... Nell's. "'Yes, this is it. "'Good-bye. "'I must.' "'Wait, what is your name?' "'I haven't any name,' answered the woman suspiciously. "'Well, pardon me. "'Here.' "'And she thrust a bill into the woman's hand. "'The girl stared. "'Well, you are a queer one. "'Thanks. "'Guess I'll turn in.' "'Mrs. Cresswell turned to see her husband and his companions,' ascending the steps of the quiet mansion. She stood uncertainly and looked at the opening and closing door. Then a policeman came by and looked at her. Come, move on, he brusquely ordered. Her vacillation promptly vanished, and she resolutely mounted the steps. She put out her hand to ring, but the door flew silently open, and a man-servant stood looking at her. "'I have some friends here,' she said, speaking coarsely. "'You will have to be introduced,' said the man. She hesitated and started to turn away. Thrusting her hand in her pocket, it closed upon her husband's card case. She presented a card. It worked a rapid transformation in the servant's manner, which did not escape her. "'Come in,' he invited her. She did not stop at the outstretched arm of the cloakman, but glided quickly up the stairs toward a vision of handsome women and strains of music. Harry Cresswell was sitting opposite and bending over an impudent blue and blonde beauty. Mary slipped straight across to him and leaned across the table. The hat fell off, but she let it go. Harry, she tried to say as he looked up, Then the table swayed gently to and fro. The room bowed and whirled about. The voices grew fainter and fainter. All the world receded suddenly far away. She extended her hand languidly. Then, feeling so utterly tired, let her eyelids drop and fell asleep. She awoke with a start, in her own bed. She was physically exhausted, but her mind was clear. She must go down and meet him at breakfast, and talk frankly with him. She would let bygones be bygones. She would explain that she had followed him to save him, not to betray him. She would point out the greater career before him, if only he would be a man. She would show him that they had not failed. For herself she asked nothing, only his word, his confidence, his promise to try. At his first start of surprise at seeing her at the table, Cresswell uttered nothing immediately, save the commonplaces of greeting. He mentioned one or two bits of news from the paper, upon which she commented, while dawdling over her egg. When the servant went out and closed the door, she paused a moment, considering whether to open by appeal or explanation. His smooth tones startled her. "'Of course, after your art exhibit and the scene last night, Mary, "'it will be impossible for us to live longer together.' She stared at him, utterly aghast, voiceless and numb. "'I have seen the crisis approaching for some time, "'and the Negro business settles it,' he continued. "'I have now decided to send you to my home in Alabama, "'to my father or your brother. "'I am sure you will be happier there.' He rose. Bowing courteously, he waited coldly and calmly for her to go. All at once she hated him, and hated his aristotic repression, this cold calm that hid hell and its fires. She looked at him wide-eyed, and said in a voice hoarse with horror and loathing, You brute! You nasty brute! End of chapter 31 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas